Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And this episode, I'll be looking at the second part of Galbraith's The New Industrial State, the second 100 pages of this 400-page book. Um, and I'll also be looking a little bit at a newly published book called The People's Republic of Walmart. So we'll look at a few chapters of that too. So it's a kind of two for one because they're, they're thematically related uh, books written, you know, 50 years apart from one another, but dealing with some of the same questions, such as planning and the role of planning in our industrial society. Um, so anyways, in the last episode, I sort of basically laid out Galbraith's, I think, pretty clear thesis here that the U.S. economy is, is mostly planned, planned by a handful of corporations. Now, we looked at some of the reasons for that, most predominantly technology and size of large firms, the size of the firms. But we also looked at things that like how, you know, capital supply might be planned. And then finally, finally, we looked at... Uh, the techno structure, what Galbraith calls the techno structure, which is essentially the industrial bureaucracy, which he thinks is the new, uh, essentially the main entity that does the planning in our in our society. So, if you just joined us, I, I urge you to go back and look at that um, that episode. So, um, in this one, there's really the main theme of this part of the book um, is well, he talks a little bit more about the techno structure. Um, and uh, the fate of the entrepreneur. He talks a little bit then about what this means for our understanding of socialism, and he compares democratic socialism, socialist socialism, and their conceptions of planning with what is happening in reality in, in, in Western capitalist countries. And then most of this section goes into uh, motivation, and I think that's maybe the most scary or the most interesting part of this section of the book and in some ways maybe one of the most uh, troublesome in the entire book and that is if you can't identify like the individual consumer or producer anymore as someone with a motive to produce or consume um, if this is all being sort of directed by larger institutions especially production you know where's the motivation right if, if we're all sort of slaves of this giant machine what makes us want to contribute to it what makes us want to work hard um, besides just uh, financial um, benefit. Why do we want to be part of these large institutions if we put so much of our kind of national uh, ideology is, is based on individual liberties? So that's, a, I think, a fascinating question, and I'm glad you spent so much time kind of looking into what he calls the theory of motivation. So like in the last episode, I'm not going to dwell too much on the, the text itself, and instead just kind of run through his, his theory and give some of my thoughts on it. Um, so chapter eight is called the entrepreneur and the techno structure. So this sort of carries on, you know, obviously the hundred page structure I work off of doesn't always, uh, lend itself to the, to the best thematic divides, but this, uh, this chapter and the next one probably fit better in the conversation we were having in the last episode, but that's okay. Think of it as a transition, as a, as a bridge. 
Um, chapter eight, the entrepreneur and the technical structure. So the question here is, you know, what is the, the where is the entrepreneur in all this? Um, and essentially he, he identifies that we're living in sort of an, um, a bureaucratic absolutism, at least that's what I, th I think. And, you know, in the same way that Louis XIV, when he tried to establish absolutism, wanted to break down the individual power of the different nobles, right? And, and in doing that, centralized power in the state, weakened people who could oppose the state and, and impose, uh, the, oppose the king, and then in doing so created this more centralized absolutist monarchy. Um, in a sense, that's sort of what we have here, where, where, but instead the disciplining of the talented people is done by corporations. So that's the fate here. I mean, basically the entrepreneur is gone, essentially. And I, I, and I know you can get a degree in entrepreneurship and maybe, you know, in some re revised form, we can say there's a role for the entrepreneur. But Galbraith is saying just for most production and most large firms, the entrepreneur is not that important. Instead, the techno structure itself is what's doing all the, the innovation, right? Um, quote, uh, he says, those whose names are linked to such consolidation, Rockefeller, Morgan, Duke, Harriman, Guggenheim, Durant, DuPont, Chrysler, Hartford, Hilton, all united control of capital with unquestioned authority in their enterprise. In light of the preceding and following arguments, worth noting that no one of their equal notoriety ever followed those pioneering entrepreneurs. So that's just a, a kind of historical reality. It's like you can name these robber barons from the 19th century, but how many CEOs of major corporations can you name? Um, you know, unless you're in, you know, you're somehow intimately connected to it. Probably not that many. Like who, who chairs Goldman Sachs? Who's the head right now of, of, of Walmart? You know, maybe, you know, Disney, you know, because that's kind of a popular culture phenomenon. But by and large, you're probably not going to be able to name too many heads of, of corporations. And that's because the power is not really centralized in that person anymore, but in the whole techno structure. So, yeah, the entrepreneur is essentially dead and gone. Instead, we get the specialist. And he kind of talks a little bit here, and I think this feeds into the question of motivation a little bit, is you end up with credit being organizational rather than, than individual anymore. And maybe 100 years ago, or by the, you know, 150 years ago, you could still see the individual entrepreneur as the prime mover and shaker of a corporation. But that just doesn't seem to be the, f the fact anymore, at least according to Galbraith. Um, then he, chapter nine is called the digression on the firms under socialism. And he's got a fairly broad definition of socialism here. He doesn't nail down one type. He talks, for instance, Great Britain under World War II is essentially a command economy, as most economies were during that. And that was a type of socialist planning. Um, he also talks a little bit about democratic socialism versus state socialism and what that might mean. I mean, essentially, his point is it's planned either way. Just one is maybe more democratic and one is more more. Uh, centralized but you know it's it's it, the question the really the question for democratic socialism is where does the planning take place and hopefully for them if if, if their program is correct social uh, under democratic socialism planning would be uh under some kind of democratic oversight um so he writes for most socialists the purpose of socialism is to control productive enterprise by the society for democratic socialists this means the legislature None and not many seek socialism so that power can be exercised by the autonomous authority. Yet this is where power must reside, end quote. So here is, he's a bit bleak, I think, about socialism, or at least anarchism or democratic type of socialism. 
in that essentially that's not really possible. Firms must take that, that leadership. And he gives the example of the Soviet Union in a little bit of detail here. And he talks about the, how after the Stalinist era, there were efforts to decentralize, to kind of end the command economy. And what that really meant in the Soviet system was not really kind of the Western style capitalist free market. What it really meant is giving planning to the firms, which is what we're talking about here in the U.S. So if planning in the U.S. is in firms and when Soviets decentralized planning away from the Kremlin and into individual firms, you essentially have the same thing. So he comes to the conclusion, it seems likely that the Soviet resolution of the problem of authority in the industrial enterprise is not unlike that in the West, although no one can be precisely sure. Full social authority over large enterprises proclaimed, like that of the stockholder and the board of directors in the United States, this social control is celebrated by all the public rituals. The people and party are paramount, but in practice, largely increasing autonomy is accorded to the enterprise. Now, the... The mythology here, of course, one under the Soviets, it was like the, the dictatorship of the proletariat manages planning. But it, in practice, they moved towards the firms doing it. In the United States, you know, it might be the individual producer of this kind of fantasy of the free market. Or I think what he's getting at here is this, like the belief that the shareholders have control, right? That the shareholders are the way kind of democracy is played out in in corporate America, but he's saying that doesn't really matter either. The decisions of the stockholders are secondary to the decision-making apparatus within the within the firm, the technostructure. Um, so these chapters kind of feed into his overall definition of the technostructure and how it applies. And and I think that's um, a pretty significant conclusion. If at the end of the day, the Soviet Union, and the U.S., in terms of actual industrial planning, it happens basically at the same level. That's quite a, I mean, that's something that'd have to be historically and empirically um, defined more than he does. And, and I can't really say, but, um, you know, I grok that to some degree, this is right. Um, so in chapter 10, we kind of get to the main issue of this part of the book, which is motivation. And chapter 10 is called approved the approved contradiction. And essentially, what's the big contradiction in all this? Well, it is like profit versus sound management is essentially it. Or more broadly, individual desires for an income, for fame, for, for wealth, for um, you know, power uh, versus the institutional goals, right? And that is the, the main contradiction. He describes it in different, um, different facets of it here. Um, so he writes, for instance, if power is regarded as resting with a few senior officers, then their pecuniary interests could be imagined to be at least parallel to the, those of their owners. The higher the earnings, the higher the salaries they can justify. The greater the return of any stock they may self, they themselves hold, and the better the prospects for any stock options they have issued themselves. Even these contentions stand only limited examination. Um, end quote. So in that sense, there can be synergy between the goals of the individual and the goals of the institution, right? But that's not clear for every participant in the institution. So there's a larger problem here. But um, kind of, uh, this is all part of a broader contradiction, though, and that is between profit and sound management, right? The, what is profitable in the short term or even the long term may not be the best for, um, may not be the best decision technically, right? Uh, maybe not the best, maybe short-term profits trump long-term profits. Maybe other goals 
of the of the firm may get undercut by the goal of profit, right? Whether it's security, stability, training a workforce, you know, there might be other goals, right, that are part of the planning apparatus. And profit is just one. And I think that's another contribution of this book is to say firms are not just single-mindedly about profit. They, they actually have a handful of, of goals. In fact, quite many goals, depending on the type of firm they'll be, that don't, aren't all reducible to, to, to profit, um, short-term or even long-term profit. Um, like they might value security more in that case. Now, the individual versus the institutional goals, I think, is where this argument troubles me a, a little bit or makes me think. You know, uh, I, of course, uh, you know, I'm of the age, you know, where, you know, I'm of the wire, right? I'm, I'm of that generation that watched the wire. Um, you know, I was already an adult, so it wasn't like formative to me, but it was something that helped clarify a lot of my thoughts about the United States and its and its uh, institutions, right? And the, the core thesis of The Wire is that the institution will always use and abuse the individuals that it's meant to serve or are members of that institution, right? So if you watch that show, you know, like the police, lower level police get uh, abused for the interest of the higher levels, same thing in the drug empires or the economy itself or politics or education, whatever it is, institutions fail the individual. Um, and that's kind of skepticism that we see in this neoliberal era isn't as strongly felt in Galbraith's book. And I think that might be a sign of his times. And it might be, you know, just evidence of the, of the type of world he lived in. So I guess we can explain this away as like a different time. But if, if Galbraith's thesis holds, you know, I think we have to deal with the problem of big institutions not really being responsive to their own, their own members if we want to accept this, especially when we get into the theory of motivation. If it's so obvious that people are being screwed over by the institutions that they're a part of, this motivation argument gets a little bit more dubious, I think. Um, but anyways, let's move on with it. So chapter 11 is called the theory of motivation, and it just explores why do people support the firms? And I mean, basically, there's a handful of reasons people might support the institution they're, they're serving. Uh, one might be compulsion. He actually does directly talk about slavery here. Um, another reason might just be money. And another one is, is what he calls identification. And let me see if I can pull up the definition of identification for you. All right, here's what I call This is really where, like, where it's like the board, right? Um, an individual on becoming associated with an organization will be more likely to adopt its goals in place of his own if he has hope of changing those he finds unsatisfactory or repugnant. And if he's strongly identified with the goals of the organization, he'll be motivated or he'll be moved all the more strongly to try to improve it, to alter, adapt any unsatisfactory goals so that they're in accord with his own. A member will identify himself more enthusiastically with a political party if he feels that he has some power to influence his platform. This is why effective political leaders seek to give their rank and file the impression, if not the reality of participation in the making of the party program. Um, so this is a very different motivation than the pecuniary, the, the cash motivation, right? But he thinks it's more powerful at the end, this, this idea that you are part of this larger goal and that those goals are complicit with yours beyond the money, right? If it's just about the money, you just go to work and go home. You don't really sacrifice beyond what you have to, to, to help the firm. But he notices people in the technical structure often do find themselves intensely loyal to these firms. Maybe this is dated. Maybe that's how it was back in the 60s. And by now, you know, people change jobs all the time. 
But, um, you know, I do think this still plays a role. And even when people have jobs for more short-term times, for a short, short-term period of time, they still embrace that institution as their home um, to, for some reason. And then it has to do that, that you think you have a part in it, that you're a part of that and can, can change it. And if you can change it, you, you're, it's, it's, like a, it's an argument for participatory um, like action, but it's not democracy. And he even says here, you know, you probably don't have that much to say, but if you feel you do, you can have identification. Um, so basically, compulsion not really relevant so much in the, the capitalist economy outside of the good old you need a job kind of compulsion. Um, but the real issue here is, is it, are people, are people part of these institutions for just the money or because they feel they're part of something? Um, chapter 12, Motivations in Perspective, basically continues this and talks about the complexity of, of motivations. It's a rather short chapter, but the basic idea here is that there's a large amount of, of there's many different motivations and even goes into authoritarian systems. And he talks like the Nazis in World War II or the Stalinist era of the Soviet Union and how you know, there, there were ways in which compulsion did not have to be used because people could um, identify. And so identification becomes a key part of, of, of this motivation. Um, chapter 13 is a, is a more focused look at the motivations of the techno structure itself. Motivation in the techno structure is the name of the chapter. Um, and here's what he writes about this. Because here the question is why, okay, we can maybe talk about the, the guy in the post office or the company post off, post, postal room, why he's part of it. And maybe money, maybe uh, identification helps. Um, but what about the technical structure as a whole? He writes this. So it can be reasonably concluded that identification, the voluntary exchange of one's goals for the preferable ones of the organization, and adaptation, the association of organization with the hopes of influencing its goals to accord more closely to one's own, are strong motivating forces in the technical structure. And it becomes increasingly so in the inner circles. This is obscured because as one moves to the innermost circle, that which is called top, called, manage, called top management, pecuniary compensation can be generous, end quote. So uh, the closer you move into the center, the more valuable your salary is, the more money you get, but also the more likely you're to feel identification and, and this adaptive function, which is kind of, he thinks really tied very closely to, to identification. Yeah, identification is basically saying my goals are less important than the goals of the firm. Adaptation is to say, not you know, be, it's that is because my goals are secondary to the firm's because I, my goals are actually uh, change my or my actions are changing those goals. I'm a part of it. I'm making those those motives of the firm. I'm being a part of it. I'm part of the system. And of course, that's going to be stronger in the techno structure. The people who actually do have that power. It's going to be less strong among the, the more marginal workers, the factory floor workers, or whatever. So that more or less wraps up Galbraith's thoughts about, uh, about motivation. And then we kind of begin another section here uh, in a chapter called The Principle of Consistency. Um, and this is more about uh, society at large. 
And he writes this, the relationship between society at large and an organization must be consistent with the relationship of the organization to the individual. There must be consistency in the goals of the society, the organization, and the individual. And there must be consistency in the motives which induce organizations and individuals to pursue these goals. So as so we notice here, he identifies three main goals that firms have. One is to society, one is to the individual, and the other is to the long-term survival of the firm itself. And consistency, and here it does tie to identification actually, because if you have consistency in the identification of the individuals, um, the community, the individuals in the firm, the community it's a part of, and the firm itself, uh, then this principle of consistency is met. Now, obviously, we can, I, if I'm reading this right, we can think of many examples in which this doesn't exist, right? Where, you know, pollution, a firm may be polluting the local community or whatever. But in an ideal sense, a mature corporation will, will be in sync with the social values of the community around it. You know, whether that's ecology or, or culture or, or whatever, goodwill, whatever that might be. Um, the individuals in the institution will have their values largely shared with those of the firm, and the firm itself will be consistently um, uh, universal in its motives. So, and then that bridges us to chapter 15 called the goals of the planning system. And here we kind of get into brass tacks about what actually all this planning is striving for. What do these firms actually want if it's not just profit? What are they most interested in? And so he, he, he identifies kind of four things that the technostructure are going to aim for um, as part of, of maybe it's five things of what the firm will want. Now, some of these are related, but he, he, you know, just, you know, what are these goals? Uh, let's just jump into it. One is obviously survival, right? That's maybe the, the, the primary goal of any firm is, is survival and any technostructure as part of a firm will make that as primary goal, whether that means, you know, fixing a demand, ensuring steady price for supply, uh, your, whatever research and development the firm may make it into, ensuring high earnings or even low earnings, but low earnings um, as long as it's consistent and predictable. Um, another goal here, and this is a little bit more subtle, and this is autonomy autonomy of the superstructure and by extension the firm itself uh, he writes the doctrine of the planning system stresses powerfully its inherently and functionally independent character it is the private enterprise system a great gulf is deemed to divide the state from the business firm only in those rarest of instances does the accepted theology approve any constraining action across this chasm on nothing is the burden of proof so strong as on the, a measure to provide standards of automobile safety or drug advertising waste of packages Etc., which involve regulation, i.e., public interference with the autonomy of the industrial enterprise. Now, you want to, you probably want to ask, well, how can firms actually plan for that? It can't really be part of planning. You can't stop a, a law from being passed. I mean, you corrupt the political system, obviously. Um, but nevertheless, that is a strong belief of the Western, of the American technostructure. Is is autonomy and they are going to that means they are going to have to get into politics it seems to me that's the only way i can read this as as really making sense but they want to avoid public regulation as much as possible um, another goal is is um growth right some kind of growth now this is 
preconditioned on a minimum level of earnings, but once that's achieved, obviously one goal would be growth. Uh, related to this would be uh, income stability. Um, there's, so there's a bit of conservatism in, in this. In fact, I was just talking to a colleague about uh, David Graeber's essay where he talks about like the lack of industrial or te technological development in the recent decades. You know, we got cell phones and internet, but you know, we don't got the flying car, we don't got the high-speed rail, we don't have, you know, the, the faster, you know, airplanes that can zip around the planet in, in one hour. Why not? And I think Gal or, no, sorry, Graber, I think Graber made the point that we've actually gone backwards in flight where the Concorde was the fastest and we haven't innovated beyond that. In fact, since that's not, those aren't flown anymore, we actually are slower than we were even 50 years ago or so. So, you know, where's the innovation? Well, part of this is due to a conservatism in the techno structure to ensure a steady rate of earnings rather than risking a lot, right? And it struck me that when tax rates were really, really high in corporations, you know, when you had 90% income tax rates on income, it made no sense to pay bosses, you know, that extra million, whatever. Let's just say it's 90% over a million. It didn't make much sense to pay people another million right because it would be taken as taxes so instead businesses invested it in the company or things like the bell labs where you got had a lot of interesting innovation take place um, but now we don't have that and and to, to the same degree it seems it's a lot of the wealth is taken as as salary right or bonuses um now one here is the, maybe the most interesting to talk about um, but maybe the hardest to define and that is technological virtuosity Right, um, is the techno structure wants to show off its its elegance, and I think this might be, although he doesn't get into it, I don't think Galbraith doesn't get into it that much. I think it might be something a facade, right? Like when you go to a corporate headquarters, you might it might look really fancy, it looks really special, and obviously corporations will display their new technology, you know, their newest innovation, and they'll look really fancy and advanced. And in practice, it maybe it's not that impressive, right? Um, or that's not really where most of their income comes from, but they can advertise technological uh, virtuosity. Now, this is always limited by the goals of profit, obviously, profit comes first. But I found it interesting that he thought um, like technological prowess is something that's sort of respected and it becomes a goal of the technostructure. Uh, kind of a self-indulgent one maybe, but an interesting one nonetheless. Okay, so that's all for the Galbraith portion of this of this episode. Um, in the next episode, we'll be looking at uh, wages, prices, demand, managing demand. Less interesting stuff, to be honest. But anyways, now I promised that we were also going to talk about a little bit, at least, uh, the People's Republic of Walmart. I, I looked at the first few chapters last time. Um, chapters one through three specifically. So let's look at three more chapters. Um, so after, in the first few chapters of this book, it's mostly setting up this debate between, you know, the free market and planning that kind of raged throughout the 20th century. And the book's argument is that planning works and is being practiced by big firms like Walmart or Amazon. Um, so chapter four then is called Mapping the Amazon, and this is about Amazon itself. And this is a great chapter. If you just want a good introduction to Amazon.com, to its labor conditions, its use of automation, the scale of the planning there, it's great. And, and even things like how 
Amazon is able to get very close to even predicting what you'll buy before you buy it, right? With the with the recommendation system, and um, you know, there's even I don't know if, I don't think it's a joke, but they they quote they filed a patent for a new process. It called anticipatory shipping. Amazon would soon know what you wanted to buy before you knew it yourself. When you place an order for the latest John Green young adult novel for young non-young adults, another jar of artisanally brine brined lupina beans or that instant pot wonder pressure cooker that produces pulled pork faster than the speed of light the package would already be on its way i don't know if that's literally true but there are um examples here i think from the media the authors got it from where like amazon was recommending like baby formula to people who weren't even pregnant yet but or didn't know they were pregnant yet like amazon knew they were pregnant before they were um wild wild stuff um so now the scale you know the description of the scale of what amazon has to plan is really kind of impressive and you have to be impressed when you look at what amazon does now you know millions and millions of different variables um have to be planned to efficiently deliver packages in just a couple days right where the warehouses are where the commodities are you know how a package, how an order will be shipped. You know, you order five things. Sometimes it all comes in one box. Sometimes it's in three or four boxes. That's all computed using, you know, various algorithms to find the most efficient uh, model. So, and of course, this requires an immense, immense amount of, of, of planning. Um, now, of course, a lot of this chapter is about workers rights in amazon the mistreatment of workers the the use of robots replacement of, of workers with robots um yeah and he, it's actually kind of impressive I, I think our authors here i'll give you their names again our authors here uh Leigh phillips and michael rosotsky are really kind of with marx in that this is all pretty amazing and awesome i mean how marx was so impressed with capitalism I think these authors are sort of amazed at what Amazon was able to do too. Even though they kind of pursue it, Amazon that is, pursues it in this, this, this kind of Darwinian, brutal Darwinian fashion. Um, they write, for instance, they quote Marx quite a lot here. Uh, Amazon is doing exactly what Marx described, they write, in a lesser known passage from the Communist Manifesto. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. Our task must be to sangle the good brought by technology from the tentacles of a system that degrades workers and subverts more rational planning, end quote. Um, now, I don't think there's a lesser known passage. I, I think it's, I've heard it before. I think I've heard it referenced a lot. So whatever, that might speak to the audience of the book, people who maybe don't read Karl Marx as much as I have. Um, but this is the key argument they're making in this book, is that this is all pretty amazing, and we should use that for socialism. Uh, um, you know, we can do this without treating workers like garbage, or, you know, or we can automate jobs without leaving, you know, people in want, right? I mean, the biggest fear of automation is not that it's going to remove toil, make life easier, that's a great stuff. Most people would approve of that, but they fear they're going to lose their jobs. So they oppose technology in the workplace, or they see technology as a bad thing, instead of a liberating thing that it can be. Um, so uh, then the chapter gets into more big data. In fact, that's on the back of this whole chapter is big data, all the different applications of big data. Um, and how, just like 
The labor process in the warehouses, the planning system leads to the degradation of workers. Big data has all sorts of negative applications as well, from surveillance state um, applications, um, even mentioning here pre-crime from Philip K. Dick's Minority Report. Um, you know, but police are using big data to try to predict crimes before they'll happen, I guess. All these things with so the Chinese use of big data to imprison non-Han non Chinese minorities in, in Xinjiang or whatever. So the difficulty of anonymity and all that. And now I think they, they, they believe that a true democratically socialist society would, would be able to use big data without compromising our individual liberties. And I totally understand why many people are skeptical of that. So chapter five is called Index Funds as Sleeper Agents of Planning. Um, and this gets into like central bank stuff. And obviously there's a lot of macroeconomic policy at work in, in central banks. And so they are essentially functioning as central planners. But where the argument really comes together here in this chapter is how they sort of connect monetary policy and the actions of central bankers with innovation. And what is the question is, what is innovative? I think that's the key one, right? Um, and it goes back to the technology question. Why don't we have the flying car yet? Well, it's because there hasn't been the incentive given to innovate in that area. And that's something it seems that central banks have some power over. Um, quote, but even if investment diverting resources for future oriented use can be planned, what about innovation? The very discovery of these new uses. At first glance, innovation does not seem like something you can plan, but like investment, which is already subject to copious conscious planning, much if not most innovation today happens outside the market. Um, so then he, they quote this book um, by this woman, Mazukdo called The Entrepreneurial State, which um, pushes how, and th there's actually like four pages that just um, go over this book's argument, which is most of the big innovations that we're praising, you know, Graeber already says there's basically been very little innovation, but people say, well, what about the cell phone? What about the internet? Well, those are all centrally planned. Those are all the very things she studied in that book. Um, microprocessors, memory chips, solid state hard drives, liquid crystal displays, lithium-based batteries, fast Fourier transform algorithms, the internet, HTTP and HTML protocols, cellular networks, global positioning satellites, touch screens, and voice recognition. Every last one was supported by the public sector at key stages in development. All right. So chapter six, this will be the last chapter I'll look at. Uh, I'm just, I'm going to take this book in chunks, just like I do Galbraith. Um, this chapter is called Nationalization is Not Enough. And here they make the argument about why it's not enough just to have state control of businesses. And I think this is going to, I kind of see, or I hope I can see where this is going to maybe a more democratic control, because that's my big concern with planning. I'm, I kind of am with both of these books in the sense that this is where the world is at. My concern is whether that's best, right? Like I just watched Food Inc, showing my students Food Inc documentary. It's about 12 years old now, but I think it still holds up. It's a great look at commercial agriculture in America. And the alternative given there, there's two. One is we either kind of go to kind of the individual farmer again, and there's like a crazy but kind of wise farmer that they interview a few times in that movie. You know, there's a scene where he's given this kind of philosophy lesson about, about you know, 
decentralized agriculture or something while he's like cleaning and, and preparing chickens for the market. It's pretty gruesome, but um, he's a wild guy. But that's what seems to be one after. Like we all become permaculturists or we only, you know, we many more of us will be farmers. Maybe we, we always grow just locally with whatever local farmer there is. That seems promising. Um, I kind of like that because, you know, it's kind of got that more anarchist feel to it. Um, but if you, you know, if you're with Galbraith or with these guys, you think big. And so the other argument given in Food Inc. was essentially we can push organics most effectively by getting Walmart to stock organics or getting the big supermarkets to stock organics, stock, stock, stock organics. In that sense, it's almost a good thing that Whole Foods, you know, gets bought up by Amazon because, uh, you know, we can debate how much we can influence as individual consumers these big corporations. And I'm skeptical. The movie was more optimistic, you know, but from their point of view, it'd be a good thing that Whole Foods would be owned by Amazon because, you know, that would just mean, you know, you're going to have more Whole Foods available. And I'm not, I don't want to get into the whole Whole Foods debate, actually. I'm not sure how good they are in terms of ecology or environment. I'm sure a lot of it is a facade. I'm just using it as an example. Um, the point I'm trying to make is I'm, I'm skeptical in planning in the sense of, of, is that the best way for a truly sustainable, democratic, socialist society? Right. I've been influenced heavily by Murray Bookchin and social ecology, and they don't like social ecology is fearful of like big institutions. Right. So is there a way to have bottom up planning? Is that possible? And that's kind of the question I, I still have. So anyways, chapter six, nationalization is not enough, talks about the British National Health Service and, you know, goes through its whole history. If you're interested in it, get the whole history of that. But now here there's something inspiring and interesting is they actually trace the history of the, the NHS back to mutual aid networks among working class people in industrial Britain, right? So it's almost like a bottom-up planning. So there are models of bottom-up planning that we can draw from, right? And I think some of, like Bookchin in the social ecological work mentioned some of them, whether it was like the sections of Paris or, you know, Barcelona during the Spanish Civil War, whatever. Um, but why not just natural, nationalize things? Why not just do that? What's, what's wrong with just something like the NHS? Well, it seems it's just because if you just look at the NHS, what happened is it got thrust into the market. It, it became marketized and private, partially privatized. Market reforms came in and undermined their capacity to, to plan for things. So that, I think, is really what it comes down to, is if you nationalize something, it can be corrupted by the, the powerful who are in positions of who, who influence government and control government. He said they say today, quote, today, after nearly three decades of market reforms each year, the NHS manager health care less while managing competition more. It plans by proxy. Less room for strategic planning means decisions are made by smaller independent units that are meshed in growing webs of contracts. Of course, before the 1990s, the NHS still planned too little and planning was not democratic enough and it was also chronically underfunded. The slow extension of the internal market to healthcare was one way out of the impasse at the end of the 1970s, an anti-democratic one, the inefficient for the system, but lucrative for private providers. So what we need then is 
a quote, rational, democratic, emancipatory, and planned public service, end quote. And that's how the chapter ends. And that is where I'll end my conversation of both of these books for, for, for now. Um, so in the next episode, I'll look at the next 100 pages, the third part three of Galbraith, where we'll talk about prices and unions and employment and managing unemployment and all that. And as far as the Phillips uh, Rozwoski book, we'll um, look at the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think just the Soviet Union. I'll just, just one chapter. We're almost actually done. The book's almost done. It's really short. Books are so short these days. I don't like long books anymore. Maybe I'll look at two chapters. I'll decide later. So um, that does it for now. So let me know what you think about any of this uh, stuff. I think it's all good and interesting and relevant. Um, but let me know what you think. Um, I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Crying too. They can't do the job they wanna do. We can go 